Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Awaken Report. I'm your host, Doug Hamp. Pleasure to take your questions today. This is where I take your questions. And I see that we already have some questions in the chat room. Uh, guys, it's great to have you. Thanks for telling me where you're from. Uh, let's see, Stephen McDonald from Liverpool, UK. Very cool. Uh, that's awesome. Guys, if you would go ahead and click that uh, like button, it really does help get the show out there. It helps others know about it. That's the best way to help the metrics. So if you want to help the show, click on the button. If you also want to help, you can also go and you can uh, be part of those who are on the patreon.com forward slash Doug Hamp. And, you know, $2 a month, $5 a month or more. Uh, it really does help. Thank you. Uh, I appreciate it. It helps me keep the lights on and family fed and all that stuff. So without further ado, let's get into your question there, Stephen. So he asks, is there a difference between eternal salvation and entering the kingdom age, millennial age? In other words, will some believers in Yeshua miss out on the kingdom but avoid eternal punishment? All right, uh, Stephen, I don't know the answer to that. All right, I'm just going to be straight up with you. I don't know the answer. Now, can I speculate? Yeah, I can speculate. But I, I don't believe that we have enough data to have a, uh, a really strong opinion about that. Uh, I will give you some passages that I think may be pertinent to this topic. So why don't we go ahead and we will uh, take a look at um, some passages. So again, the question, is there a difference between salvation and entering the kingdom, and, or that is the millennium age, millennial age? In other words, will some believers in Yeshua miss out on the kingdom but avoid eternal punishment? So I'm going to start with uh, a great passage in... 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Oops, hold on. For some reason. There we go. All right, I'm back. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. Now let me uh, declutter my screen just a little bit here. So let me get rid of a couple things. And let's see here. All right, we'll get rid of those and we'll get rid of those. All right. And we will just go to English. All right. So in... 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. Paul tells us, he says, Now if anyone builds on this foundation, all right, what foundation? Well, he says, No other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the foundation. All right, so you can you can build upon that foundation. What can you build? All right, I can build, you can build. We all are building something upon this foundation. Who, who is Christ? Well, Christ, of course, is the one who saved us, right? He is the one who died that we might have eternal life. So starting with that as a foundation, just as bedrock, then we can build an edifice on top of that. And it's up to us what we're going to build. So notice that it says, uh, no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work, which he has built on it, endures, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. All right, so that is uh, what, what Scripture, uh, at least Paul in this, in this case, is telling us, is that you can be saved, you can build on that foundation, and it can be a lousy, um, the foundation is good, but what you build 
can be bad. Notice again, you can build either with gold, silver, precious, uh, silver and precious stones or wood, hay, and straw. But it's going to become clear what you decided to build because everything's going to be revealed by fire. Fire. Fire burns things, right? Now, fire does not burn gold. It doesn't burn silver. And it doesn't burn precious stones. But it certainly does burn wood, hay, and straw. Those are burned up. So if you have built your life around wood, hay, and straw, things that do not endure, that in the day of Jesus, when you stand before his throne, we're all going to stand before his throne, and we're going to be judged by his fire. Where does that fire come from? It's God's fire that we will be exposed to. God is a consuming fire. We see this again and again, Daniel chapter 7, Ezekiel chapter 1. So many passages speak of the fiery presence of God. You just got to read the Bible to see that fire is all over the place. And I don't think it's just metaphorical. I think this is literal because it's always speaking about God's fire uh, in some pretty amazing ways that the mountains are going to melt like wax. We're told that God is going to come back, that the day of the Lord will come as a thief of the night in which the elements will melt away with fervent heat, right? Melt with fervent heat, right? So this is when Jesus comes back. The world is going to know it because he's coming back in his flaming fire. So then the question is, can you have uh, kind of been a, a, a weak Christian? Just going to throw that question up there again. Will some believers in Yeshua miss out on the kingdom but avoid eternal punishment? From what Paul is telling us, I get the distinct impression that you can be a believer. You can be on the foundation of Christ. But the works, the things that you did while here can be worthless and they can be for nothing. And it says, if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So with that in mind, I would suggest that it is possible to be in the kingdom but to have no rewards, nothing to show for it. You know when the 24 elders each take their crown and they lay it down before before God? Isn't that a wonderful thing? I mean, we go in, we come into this world naked, we leave this world naked. We have nothing to take with us. All of our earthly treasures are non-transferable, right? We cannot take those with us. So we cannot show up before the king with something from this world. I, I was just reading in uh, Chronicles where uh, the Queen of Sheba came to Solomon. And the custom was is that you bring lots of gifts when you went to see uh, an important king. It seemed, sounds like just the opposite, right? I mean, I mean, today we'd think, well, the rich people give me something, right? But that's not how it was back then, is that, is that the, the, the lesser would take gifts to the greater. That was part of the deal. And so... Uh, here you had a situation where the Queen of Sheba took all kinds of gifts to the king. Uh, I think of the, the the wise men. We don't know how many there were. Maybe there were three. Maybe there were ten. But they, they had at least three gifts, and they set those before Jesus. That was pretty special. That was significant, showing that he is the great king. And uh, we want to have something that we can lay before the feet of our king when we get there. But the only thing we can take are the works that we that we do. So we, we want to be wise. We want to be living for God. Now, there's another passage I want to bring to our attention, which is from Jesus himself, where he talks about this in Matthew chapter 5, 
starting at verse, uh, well, let's start at 17. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. For whoever breaks, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. All right, so that's pretty powerful stuff, right? I want to be the person who is not breaking them and not teaching others to break the commandments. I want to be the one who's going to be considered great in the kingdom by keeping commandments. That is really simply, uh, you know, call it self-interest if you want, but I'm like, wait a second. I want to be great in God's kingdom. I don't want to, you know, be whatever it means to be least. I don't want to be that person. Uh, it doesn't mean that I'm boastful. That's not the point. That's not at all what God's kingdom is about. It's not boasting. But it is about uh, being great according to his measure of greatness. And part of that has to do very clearly with what Jesus tells us here in Matthew chapter 5. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So for me, it, it's quite simple. I want to be great in God's kingdom. Again, not a boastful kind of greatness, not an arrogant, oh, I'm better than you. It's not that kind of greatness, but I want to be uh, great in the sense that I'm, I'm like God, that I have a nature, I have a uh, an attitude, a perspective like him. I want to be Christ-like, and I want to be as Christ-like as possible. That's what it means to be great in his kingdom. And a big, big, big part of that is being righteous, <laughs> you know, is doing what he said. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. He who loves me keeps my commandments. If you don't love me, you don't keep my commandments. If you don't keep my commandments, you don't love me, right? I mean, it's really simple stuff. So I would suspect that we can be on that foundation of Jesus, and there can be varying levels to the degree that we have pressed in to being Christ-like. Now, I find that uh, very comforting on the one hand, that um, I don't have to be uh, a perfect, flawless kind of person in order to be in his kingdom. But I also don't want to use that as license to then throw out the law, as I think a lot of people are unfortunately doing. You recall in Romans chapter 3, verse 31, uh, Paul says this very thing. He says, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. So this is something that we want to make sure that we're keeping God's commandments, not as a means to earn his salvation. We cannot earn his salvation. That is a free gift. But we want to be faithful children. And to the degree that I press in and I'm like my dad, I'm like him and I do what he does. I like what he likes. Then, you know, if God is on this wavelength, but I'm on this weird wavelength, guess what? We're not syncing up. And guess whose fault that is? It's mine, right? It's not God's fault because God is unchanging. 
So his his wavelength, it's not changing. It's always the same. So uh, if I want to get in sync with him, I've got to line up with him. And you know what's interesting talking about wavelengths is that um, when we have wavelengths that are not in sync with one another, it's called an interference pattern because it means that they're they're canceling each other out. So as uh, you can kind of think of water going through some some slits and then uh, other waves will come out. Uh, this all has to do with quantum physics and stuff. But uh, as these waves come out, then it will create these interference patterns where those waves are literally canceling each other. So they become a net zero. So they have no impact. They have no, uh, no benefit. And that's what's happening when, when, I'm, when God is going like this and I'm doing this other weird thing is that I'm creating my actions, my uh, disharmony with God is creating interference patterns. And that's where I'm finding that I'm failing in my life because I'm not on the same wavelength as God. <laughs> Why, you know, I don't want to do that, right? So I want to be in the same wavelength as him. All right, I hope that answers your question, Stephen. Thank you uh, for that great question. Let's move on. Uh, another Stephen, this is from Steve Chilton. Hi, what are your thoughts on the doctrine of soul sleep? That the dead remain asleep until the coming of Jesus. Uh, does one First Thessalonians four sixteen prove this when it says that the dead rise after the return of Christ? Well, there. Uh, I think you can argue both. I think you can argue fairly well. But let's take a look at a couple passages that I'm going to let you think about. Uh, I, again, I think that you could make a case for soul sleep. I think you could make a case that we are absolutely conscious from scripture and i'm not quite sure which one it is um the cool thing about soul sleep is if we're just asleep and where there's no consciousness until the resurrection then it's it's just like that you won't even know right i mean it's like you you go under and then you're then you're you wake up right so so from from the person who dies and then rises again it's like you're closing your eyes, opening your eyes. It, it's just, it's the twinkling of an eye, right? It's really that quick. Now, if we actually have consciousness, then it's, a, of course, a different perspective altogether. So let's get started. Let me turn off your question, and we will go to Revelation chapter 6, where we have Revelation 6. You've got in the fifth seal. You've got these souls that are under the altar. They've been slain for the word of God and the testament which they held. And they're saying with a loud voice, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who would be killed as they were, was completed. So you've got these souls. Their souls, these are psuche is the Greek word there, uh, from where we get psychic, right? Uh, psuche. This is um, uh, the souls. This is the, the disembodied you, right? The disembodied you. Uh, here are some people that have died, so they don't have their bodies. You might think of it like software to hardware. The software is still there, right? The program is running. The essence of who they are is there but it's not in a housing unit, right? They don't, they don't have a new body yet. So what exactly they're doing under the altar, I have no idea. 
what does this altar look like? Is it a, is it a gigantic uh, computer server? Is it that kind of idea? Is it a, a holding place for, for souls? Is this what Jesus was talking about when he said that there are many mansions in my father's house? So much for, you know, the big fancy white mansion and the Cadillac. Maybe this is what he had in mind, that they're like these little, little uh, uh, holding places, right? Uh, everybody gets a cubicle until, until you get your new body. That's the impression that I get from what's happening under the altar. Now, some people would say, well, you know, that you really can't take this too seriously. Well, then what can we take seriously? If we can't take this seriously, what can we take seriously? We have another passage, which is in Luke chapter 16. And uh, there, you know, we have the rich man and Lazarus. So you have this rich man. He uh, is clothed in great clothes. And you got Lazarus. Lazarus, the Hebrew El Azar, which means God helps. El Azar. So there's already some discussion and there's 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 certainly some uh, big question marks in my mind whether this is talking about um, an, an actual scenario is this what the afterlife looks like or is Jesus using this as a parable to teach a principle and I'm not sure what is the answer but let's just assume for a moment that this is actually what the afterlife looks like all right and you might say well, why are you having any doubts about this Doug? this is what it says well first of all it says there was a certain rich man all right so that right there gives us the impression that jesus is talking about a parable and then lazarus well could be a real person no question about that it could also be um a, a name uh an epithet the one whom god helps all right and so instead of saying you know, hey, Lazarus, like this particular guy, but it could be that there was this guy whom God helped. In other words, El Azo. Uh, so that, that that's, a, I think, a real possibility. And, of course, in the first century context, there was a fair amount of discussion as to what actually happened. So Jesus, was on the, at the very least, was trying to dispel the idea that there was some kind of a purgatory. You were either in or you were out, which this parable makes very clear. And contrary to the teaching of the Pharisees, uh, at least these particular Pharisees that thought that if you were rich, it was an absolute sign of God's, um, God's favor and blessing on your life. Rather, he's saying, no, it's not about how much money you have. That's not a, that's not a, a sure sign that you're, you're in good with God. But how are you living? All right, so he, he really is turning things upside down. But nevertheless, we have this, this story. And so eventually the rich man dies. He goes and he's in torments. All right, so again, Jesus makes it very clear. You're either here or there. So I'm not going to focus too much on, on the torment side of things because that's a whole different discussion. But notice that Lazarus. So if we take the assumption that this is a real person, well, then where, what happened to Lazarus? Lazarus went and he was with Father Abraham. He was in his bosom. All right, that's the same idea that when John, the Apostle John, was, was uh, reclining on the bosom of Jesus at the Passover, that um, there was that really close connection. Now, so we often call this place Abraham's bosom, right? Uh, which is kind of a, a weird designation because it's not like there's some land called Abraham's bosom, right? 
but it's just that that closeness with Abraham. Now, we would assume that if this place does indeed, indeed exist, that it is a very temporary kind of holding that uh, disembodied spirits would go there until they could go and be in God's presence. Not getting, not getting their new bodies yet, but at least being in God's presence. But again, these are some of the discussions, right? And, and I'm not quite sure how to put it on there. So these are some, some things that would suggest that there is a sentience immediately after death, that people are awake, there's consciousness. Now, let's look at another passage, because I think we're going to find, at least from the book of Daniel, that just reading Daniel, you get the distinct impression that actually you're going to sleep. All right, so he says, uh, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the end of time. And he says, um, I'm sorry, did I miss my, let's see, I came from the time it's taken away, but he waits, but you go until the end, for you shall rest. Okay, you shall rest and it will arise to inheritance at the end of the day. So you'll rest or you'll sleep. Uh, so you get, you get this idea that Daniel is going to sleep, that he is going to um, be resting. Of course, here in verse 2, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. So sleep can certainly be, and it is, a euphemism for death. Remember when, when Lazarus, speaking of Lazarus, what, had died, and Jesus said, hey, we need to go to our friend Lazarus where he sleeps. And the disciples are like, well, Lord, if he's asleep, then just wake him up. He's like, no, he's dead. All right, so it was being used as, as a euphemism for being dead. The question is, what does that mean uh, for the person's consciousness? Um, these are the, the best things that I would have. There's a few other places where it says that you will sleep with your fathers, right? We have that. Um, God says that to Abraham. He says that uh, to um, King David, or David says that he's going to sleep with his, with his ancestors. So I think we can make a case either way. Um, it, to me, it doesn't really make a difference. Uh, I'm happy either way if I'm conscious and I'm hanging out underneath the altar and I'm saying, how much longer, Lord? Okay. You know, uh, I mean, it can't be terrible to be in God's presence but and stuck under the altar. Uh, it's not the ideal situation or people wouldn't be asking when do we get our new bodies, right? And so getting the new body is the big deal. So probably if I had a preference, I'd rather just not be conscious and just, you know, die. And then the next time I open my eyes is the resurrection. I think that'd probably be, probably be the best. So those are my thoughts on that. Thank you for asking that cool question. All right. This is from Brilliant Radiance. So the question, how does astrology factor in with Christianity? Not daily horoscopes. Mars is moving into the constellation. Aries for eight months uh, from June to January 21, meaning aggressive energy everywhere. I'm not sure if there's a part two to that question. Um, well, you know, so I, I guess that's kind of the question. Um, so there, there is a book, um, uh, uh, Bollinger, I think, Bollinger. Yeah. Something. I'm close. Bullinger, uh, I'm, I'm, it's right on the tip of my tongue. But um, it's coming. 
Uh, anyway, this guy wrote a book, uh, the, the Gospels and the Stars, and he suggests that the the uh, constellations, the uh, obviously the ones from the of, from the zodiac, uh, that was the Gospel in the Stars. Now there is a Hebrew word which we have uh, Mazarot, which is kind of in that same idea. The Mazarot is the constellations or the the zodiac, if you will. And we're not told exactly what that means. Uh, God does claim that he's the one who put Orion's belt up there. Um, you know, what, what, what are we to determine from that? I am not completely persuaded that, um, you know, that, that God necessarily put a story in the sky. I think it's entirely possible. It's not beyond God to do such a thing. I'm just not sure that he did. Uh, what I get the sense when he's when he's uh, kind of letting Job know, hey, uh, Job, I'm God, you're not. So, you know, you need to chill out here. I think it's in chapter 39. All right. So let's see if I can find that. It could be in chapter 38. Could be in chapter 40. I'm going to search for that. Because I can't quite remember. It's right, right there. But uh, let's see if I can find Orion. And that will probably... There we go. Okay. Well, so he talks about he made the bear, Orion, and the Pleiades. All right. So here it is, chapter 38. All right. Can you cluster... Can you bind the cluster of the Pleiades or loose the belt of Orion, can you bring out Mazarot in its season? Can you guide the great bear with its cubs? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you set their dominion over the earth? So, again, I, I mean, I think we could easily read that, suggesting that God is like, look, I put all those stars up there, and what you guys see as Orion's belt and the bears, look, I did all that. So I don't know that he's necessarily saying that there is a message in the sky, but it's God saying, look, you, you know, humans uh, purport that there's a message in the sky, whether there is or not, I'm the one that put the stars there. So that's the impression that I get. Um, and, and as far as, you know, horoscopes and the movement of the planets, well, clearly the planets are moving. Uh, there's no question about that. And, and people have uh, rightly, um, figured out their trajectories and where they're going to be. But insofar as those affecting your life, I'm incredibly skeptical. I don't think they do at all. I don't, I don't think that uh, the movement of the, of the stars or the planets has any bearing on uh, what my life does. Now, I know that I was, uh, you know, I'm born in April, so I'm a Taurus. Okay. Do I give any credence or any significance to that at all? No. Right. It's just one of those things that, People are like, well, what sign are you? I'm like, I, you know, well, okay, I was born in April. Oh, you're Taurus. I'm like, okay, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's fine. You know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't matter to me because I don't put any stock in that. Um, I just don't put any stock in it. So I don't think that there's uh, aggressive energy everywhere, as uh, you kind of asked uh, in here. Now, is there energy? Sure, there's energy everywhere. God. Put lots of energy in this universe, uh, but that the movement of the stars would somehow give me my future. I don't think so. Not, not in my opinion. All right, let's get on to the next one. Let's see. Okay, so here's a question from Melissa. 
uh, Kalitz. Uh, Melissa, I think you're from South Africa. I think I just got an email from you. So uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, welcome. So glad that you could join us. Uh, if we do sleep until uh, Yeshua returns, what um, what did it mean when he said to the one guy hanging on the cross next to him that he will be with him today in paradise? It's mm, a great one. Yeah. Well, again, um, if we, uh, you know, again, there's different ways to read that. Um, some people would say, you know, I say to you today, comma, you'll be with me in paradise, right? So that's that's one way to read that. That Jesus is saying, look, I'm telling you right now that you're going to be with me in paradise. Not necessarily right now, but you'll be with me. I'm telling you now that you will be with me in paradise. All right. So that that's that's one way to read that. I'm, I'm not quite sure that that's that's really accurate. Um, so what are the, what would be the other option? Well, what did Jesus do? Right. I mean, it's interesting that Jesus seemed to have some kind of work. He had to do when he was dead. Um, uh, we get this sense that he went down and he spoke to some spirits. Now, again, that's from Second Peter. There's different ways we can read that. Um, I, the, I think these are just really challenging uh, discussions. But to be fair, Melissa, I think you know what the what you're pointing out with uh, the guy on the cross. It, it does add another dimension to this. And this is why I'm not really dogmatic about it. You know, if uh, if the guy on the cross died, the thief on the cross died, and then, you know, post-mortem, he got to see Jesus and he's like, hey, cool. That's awesome. You know, uh, if he if he died and then he started to sleep and then the next moment that he opens his eyes, right, no time will have uh, will have passed from his perspective, because he's been unconscious, then the next time he opens his eyes, it will be as if it were today. Would that be breaking the rules? I don't know. I, I don't I don't suppose so, but I guess you could make a case for it. So, you know, again, I, I do not have a strong opinion about that. I have given the passages as I've seen them, uh, where it does talk about sleeping. Uh, sleeping certainly is a euphemism for death what exactly that means but here's what i would say it's not it doesn't what, what what you should not expect is that you you die today and then you're up there gallivanting in heaven and you're just traipsing around and you you've got your mansion and all this different stuff and you're walking around on the streets of gold i totally disagree with that i totally agree, disagree i would suggest that if we are conscious that we are probably going to be like those spirits under the altar and we'll be saying, how much longer till we get our new bodies, Lord? And he's like, just a little bit longer, right? So I would almost prefer to be asleep because, I mean, I don't know. I've never been dead, so I, I really can't tell you. But from what, I, from what I'm gathering, you know, to just close my eyes and then wake up resurrected, that seems pretty cool. But again, I've never been there. I don't have enough verses to give me a clear picture as to what is really going on. All right, cool. Thank you, Melissa. This is from Mr. Ripcord. In Matthew 5.28, does it really say woman in general, or does it say wife? Because how can someone commit adultery if the woman wasn't even in a marriage? All right, well, let's go to that passage. Matthew 5.28. Matthew 5.28. All right. All right, so... You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman 
to lust for her, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. All right, so let's take a look at the Greek and see what we can gather from that. I'm going to guess the word is gune. All right, guneka. Right. All right. Ego de lego imin otipas o blepon guneka. All right. So this word here. All right. This word is. Um, <laughs> this this may disappoint you, but the word gune, which is woman. All right. The word gune means both woman and wife. All right. So uh, same in Hebrew. Incidentally, the word isha means woman. It also means wife. All right, so there is no other word for that. Uh, you just say ishti, right? This is my woman, right? Now that sounds um, chauvinistic, right? In English, you can't say this is my woman, right? It sounds like you're a caveman. We don't say it that way. We would, we're a little bit offended if somebody should say, hey, this is my woman. Um, we have to say wife, right? Um, but in, in both Hebrew and Greek, there is no distinct word. So, you could have uh, other words that would be used to describe a young maiden who is not married. A young maiden who, um, yeah, she's she's not really, she's not married. Okay, so that would be, uh, you know, a, 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 a way that they could put it. Now, um, you have the, the woman, uh, Anna, or Anna, who is a prophetess. Let's take a look at that passage. Um, I actually don't quite recall uh, whether or not it says woman. I know it does say prophetess, but I'm pretty sure it says says woman. So let's let's take a look at that. And here we go. All right, and let's see what there was. Let's see what it says here. So there was one, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age, and she lived with her husband, Seven years from her virginity. Okay, so I don't think it's actually going to tell us. Um, yeah, it doesn't say. It just says she's a prophetess. All right, so it doesn't tell us. That's too bad. I was kind of hoping we could find something there. But uh, I don't see anything. So um, it just says woman. All right. Now, per your question, per your question, um, how can you commit adultery with someone if the woman wasn't even in a, in a marriage, right? So, well, um, I, I think kind of at the heart of the question is if you're lusting after a woman, whether she's married or not, um, and let's say that you have uh, no intentions or opportunities to marry this person, then what is happening is in your mind, you are committing adultery with a woman who is going to be another man's wife, right? So she may not currently be someone's wife, but she's going to be someone's wife. Uh, so it, 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 it doesn't change a lot, right? Even though she's not yet married. So, um, you know, I think what Jesus is trying to get us to do is to have uh, good, clean thoughts. Um, it's also objectifying a woman when you lust after a woman because you're just think of thinking of her uh, util, utilitarian uh, uh, value instead of uh, her as a person. Now, I think God made women beautiful, and men are very much attracted to uh, how women look. So we should not ignore that. That's kind of the elephant in the room, right? It's not that we uh, can't have our eyes open, but we need to be careful uh, how we use those eyes, right? We need to be careful with 
what we allow our eyes to gaze at. Uh, Job said that he made a covenant with his eyes, that he would not sin, that he would not um, um, sin after the young woman. Okay, so so he, you know, this is something that goes back a long time. This is not something new. This is not uh, new to modern man. This is as old as the stars, right? This This goes back a very long way. And again, he wants us to present ourselves as uh, living sacrifices. Now, you might say, oh, that's so hard to sacrifice ourselves. But again, what God is wanting us to do is to live pure. And if we will practice his principles, we will enjoy so much more. I think the church has gone way too far to this other extreme, that anything that is, let's call it fleshly, or anything of the flesh pertaining to uh, the body, that it's all icky, it's yucky. And um, that is very much an unfortunate perspective uh, that started, uh, I think it was the second or third, fourth century, somewhere in there, where you had this uh, huge dichotomy between uh, the soul and the body, kind of a, one of the Gnostic ideas, and that uh, anything material was tainted, it was sinful, it was bad, and that only the spirit was good. And so we've carried this this dichotomy in our theology now for centuries and it still exists and this is why uh it can be very difficult and so we kind of get the sense that well you know i can't i can't um you know enjoy the pleasures of the flesh not at all god created all that stuff he created it for our enjoyment but it has to be uh, enjoyed and um well enjoyed in the right context right it's the right context that makes the marriage bed holy. Uh, if if it's not a marriage bed and it's just a fornication bed, then it's not holy, right? And what does holy mean? It means that it's set apart. It is exclusive, right? So if it's not a marriage bed, it's not exclusive. So therefore, it's not holy, and uh, and that is not how God created it. It's going to lead to sorrow, to pain, to uh, unwanted children. Uh, ultimately, it could lead to disease. Uh, it could lead to a host of different things. And then we throw our hands up and say, Lord, why did you let this happen to me? And he's like, well, I tried to tell you, but you weren't willing to listen. So this is where we want to kind of nip that little thing in the bud and, and just be careful how we uh, how we use our eyes, uh, what we gaze at, and then what we allow to come into our mind. Now, let me just say this. This is, I think, really important for guys because sometimes we can be plagued with uh, thoughts that can come into our, our heads. Say, oh, I'm such a sinner because... You know, I had this thought, and sometimes you can have just thoughts, right? You know, uh, rated X that, that come into your mind. You're like, oh, no, I'm such a terrible person. Well, look, here's the deal. Um, just like you're driving down the road and you see a billboard, uh, let's say it's a, an X-rated billboard, right? Uh, you were driving around, you were just, you know, minding your own business, and boom, there's this billboard, right? You can gaze at it really quick, right? You just, you look, and you're, and you're like, oh, I'm not going to look at that thing. Or you could stare at it, right? So if you stare at it, that's where the sin comes in, right? That's where the lusting comes in. So if you have an X-rated thought and it just kind of flashes in your mind, what you do is you just say, oh, <laughs> you're not wanted here, okay? You just go this way, all right? And just show it the door, right? But if you say, oh, come on in, stay for a while, let's talk, right? And you invite that thought to hang out in your head for a long time, that's when it becomes yours. And that's when you start having a problem. So um, 
you know, the, the occasional thought that the, the flashing thought, um, I would, I would suggest probably is not your fault. It could be if you've been feeding yourself bad stuff, but uh, if you're just kind of the average guy, then, uh, you may have flashing thoughts. Just show them the door, say, you know, you're just passing through, just keep on going, right? Don't, don't stay here. There's no place for you and, and don't feel bad about it. Just show the door and don't dwell on it. Right? If you dwell on it, then you're, you know, inviting it in and making it your guest and, and, uh, and giving it place. Then, then it becomes yours and then you're responsible for that. All right. Thank you. All right, <laughs> another exciting topic. What's your biblical perspective on vasectomies? Well, uh, I think this is a, a fair way that if men are ready to no longer have children, then this is certainly one way to do that. I think this is a decision every guy will have to think about, pray about. I don't see any biblical uh, reason that would preclude that. Um, I wouldn't. I mean, Jesus does talk about how you can become a eunuch, which I know is different. I understand that it's different. Um, but still, I mean, it, 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 both being a eunuch and getting a vasectomy result in the loss of the ability to have children. Um, and uh, so I think, you know, if you can become a eunuch for the kingdom, some have even chosen to do so, he says, then I don't think that be getting a vasectomy would be something that's not biblical. All right, let's see here. Let's go to Stephen again. Uh, thanks, good answer, sir. Amen. We establish a tour because we are saved by grace through faith and obey our Savior. Amen. All right, let's go to Tim. What is your take on second Passover this Friday? Uh, I think it's great. If you miss the first Passover, then keep the second Passover. Um, this is a provision that God made if you're traveling and you are not able to attend the first Passover. Uh, we know that Hezekiah did this in Second Chronicles 34, 35, somewhere in there. And um, it says that people were not ready. And so he even prayed. He said, Lord, you know, uh, forgive us for not being ready. And it says that God uh, heard him. And so they had a, a good time. I, I really believe that God uh, is touched when we at least try to keep his commandments. He's like, you know what? You didn't do it perfectly, but you tried. And so I, I think that he has a, a lot of grace for those who are trying. And I think he will kind of push things together and, and do his amazing God stuff, uh, you know, to kind of make things happen. But if we're just in rebellion, we're like, I'm not going to keep that thing. That's not for me. And God's like, eh, that's too bad. You know, I, I, I thought we could be friends. You know, I, I think that's kind of how friends are, you know, that if, you know, if you and I agree to meet for coffee and you text me and say, hey, I, you know what? I am so, so sorry. I cannot make it today. I'm like, you know what? Don't worry about it. Let's reschedule. All right. Let's do it tomorrow. All right. And then we get together and we have a great time. And you say, hey, thanks for thanks for being understanding. And of course, well, that's what friends do. Right. And I think if we understand that this is a relationship with God, he's not this big taskmaster in the sky that's looking for opportunities to blast us and to beat us. Not at all. He he's, he's a, he's, wants to be our friend. He is a loving father. And so he is looking for opportunities to pour out grace. But if we have the attitude of, uh, of, of being rebellious, like Nimrod, and we're like, you know, forget you, God, and we tell him that where he can go, 
he's like, well, okay, I, I know your true feelings for me. So I guess there's not much I can do, uh, you know, because God would show lots of grace in the relationship, uh, just like I would and probably you would show lots of grace in the relationships that you have. Uh, but again, if that other person is bellicose and is arrogant and repeatedly says that the person hates you, then you're like, well, I guess there's no opportunity to show any grace here. That's the whole, you know, so that, that settles that. <laughs> so thank you, Tim. All right. This is from Cindy. Did evil exist before Satan? All right. Cindy, first of all, I'm going to really encourage you to go to right here in my YouTube channel uh, and put in um, why does evil exist, right? It's one of my one of my videos. I produced that probably, I don't know, four to six months ago, somewhere in there. I taught that on a Shabbat as I've been going through the book of Revelation. And I think you'll find it um, very eye-opening. All right, so I'm going to give you a quick rundown on some of the verses. But again, go to that video, and I will give you all kinds of amazing evidence that you can take with you, and you can say, oh, I get it. All right, so here is a really quick snapshot of that. Let's go to Isaiah 45, 7. Isaiah 45, 7. I'm going to pull up the Hebrew so you guys can see this. Uh, just as much here. So Isaiah 45, 7, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. Now, that is the New King James translation. It says in Hebrew, So this right here, is create peace, or the creator, excuse me, not peace, but evil, uh, the creator of evil. So I, the Lord, do all these. I do all these things, right? So he says right here that he is the creator of Ra. Now, I think Ra as calamity is kind of a wimpy translation, in my opinion. So let me pull up a couple others for you. So there's the King James translation. This is the King James 2000. I uh, create calamity. Let me go back to the. King James, the original version. All right, here we go back. So I create evil. I think the King James got this right. I think uh, the creating of evil is what the text actually says. Now, let me go back and show from Genesis chapter um, chapter 2, or chapter 3. So we have, of course, Adam and Eve. They're in the garden. And they eat from the tree, and we know what happens, right? We know the whole story. So, who put that tree of, what is it? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's right. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The word there, Ra. Right? So, God is the one who created that tree. He's the one who put the tree in the garden. He put it in the garden in, you know, in, 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 in the distance, uh, reaching distance of Adam and Eve, so that they would have the possibility to eat of that fruit. Now, why would God do something like that? I mean, goodness, you put the cookie jar in front of somebody and they might just take a cookie, right? Well, that's the point, is that God put the cookie jar right in front of Adam and Eve. He says, you guys, look, you're, you're in my entire kitchen. I've got cakes. I've got croissants. 
I've got scones. I've got the, all these other cookies. But these cookies right here in this jar, don't eat them. Okay, don't eat them. If you eat of these cookies, you're going to die. All right. But it's wall to wall with all these other delicious desserts. Right. Have anything you want. Or if you don't want desserts, have pizza, chicken, whatever. It's, it's well, not chicken. But, you know, it's all delicious stuff. Okay. So they had a zillion things they could have eaten, but they ate the one thing that God said not to eat. So why would God put this cookie jar right there? in their reach when they very well could eat it because that was the thing that was necessary for them to be like God. How do I know that? Because the text says so. That's why. That's how I know is the text tells me. So notice that God says down here and he says, look, uh, let me go back to the new King James just for consistency. Um, Guys, just read the Bible. You're, you're, whatever Bible you read, great. I, I don't care. I happen to like King, New King James, but it doesn't matter. So then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. Look at that. Man has become like one of us, right? To know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take of the tree of life and eat forever, uh, live forever. Therefore, the Lord sent him out of the garden. Okay, so God said that man has become like one of us. I am of the opinion that being like God is a good thing. Why would I think that? Because God said that he created us in his image and in his likeness. Notice this. God said, let us make man in our image. Okay. In our image. What does that mean? To be made in God's image means that I, this thing, right, this body, it's analogous to God's body. It has the same shape, the same form as God. Now you might say, how do you know that, Doug? Again, the scripture tells me so, right? The Bible tells me so, right? That's how I know that Jesus loves me, because the Bible tells you so. How do I know what God kind of looks like? Not completely, but kind of, because the Bible tells me so. So notice here, and above the ferment over their heads was the likeness of a throne and likeness of sapphire stone. And the likeness of the throne was the likeness with the appearance of a man high above it. In the Hebrew, it says Adam, right? It says Adam, right? Here it is. Ke Adam, right? So God looks like man. Just in case you don't believe me, uh, he says, and this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Sorry. So he's looking at God. He's looking at God. And what does God look like? He looks like Adam. Why does he look like Adam? Because God created Adam in his image. So it's not God that looks like Adam so much, but it's Adam that looks like God. But when Ezekiel looked at this throne, he saw one who looked like Adam, who had the Adam form, right? We all have this Adam form. Some of us are thicker. Some of us are thinner. Some of us are taller. Some of us are shorter. But we all have the basic Adam shape, right? Because we're made in God's image and God made Adam in his image, all right? So we have that same image that, uh, that God created us in. He created us in his image and in his likeness. All right, so his, to be in his image is to look like God, to be in his, um, well, his image and his likeness, all right? So his image... An image, think of a picture, right? So you look like, you look like your father, you look like your mother. 
And according to our likeness, what does it mean to be like God? Well, we don't act like fish. We don't act like dogs. Some of us do, but we probably shouldn't, right? But we, we act human, right? Uh, some people actually think they're cats. There's a screw loose there. Uh, but we act like God. Now, we don't always act as we should, right? But how do we act like God? Well, we're, we're expressive. We're creative. We can talk, right? We, we can create things. God is creative. We're creative. God is imaginative. We're imaginative. And the list goes on, all right? So we're in his image and in his likeness. But there was one more thing that God couldn't pre-program in us, and that was that, that we would be self-directing. And the only way to make a self-directing creature with a volition and a will is to give that being an option to choose. Right. So I've been reading through a book right now called uh, In Our Own Image. It's a very interesting book. Uh, godless, I would say, but very interesting. I'm reading it for research purposes. Uh, but you check it out if you want, if you're interested. It's an interesting book, In Our Own Image. Um, and uh, the question has come up if mankind could create uh, a, uh, an avatar, a, a being in our own image. Would we give it the option to choose, right? Would we give it the option to choose? Uh, Isaac Asimov uh, wrote some rules for robots uh, in, in his book, I, Robot, years ago, that a robot uh, can never harm a human. A robot has to always do what is best for humans, right? Well, God did not put that uh, kind of uh, blockage in our in our core program. He did not say that we couldn't do things contrary to his will he said actually that we could he said we could and that was an absolutely necessary part so i'm going to give you now the definition of evil this is the cool thing is that the bible defines for us what evil is all right and we have it with two witnesses so that's always a good thing is that we have multiple witnesses telling us what evil actually is so this is in isaiah chapter 65 verse 12 Therefore, I will number you for the sword, and you shall bow down to the slaughter. Because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not hear, but did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. Let me pull that up in Hebrew so you guys can check that out. All right. So it says, Vatasu hara. So this word ra is the word evil. All right. And so what is it to do evil in God's eyes? Right here is the definition. I highlighted it for you, and chose that in which I do not delight. Let me get another translation so that you can uh, get another feel for how you might say that. Uh, you did evil before me. You chose to do what displeases me. All right, that's the, the New English translation. How about the NIV? Let's see what uh, that has to say. Uh, and chose what displeases me. All right, so that's. Another one. How about the NASB? This says, uh, and chose that in which I did not delight. So they are very, very similar uh, in their wording of this passage. So uh, you can also check it out in Isaiah 66, 4. Right? It says the same thing. So what is it to do evil? To do something, to choose something that God does not delight in. Very simple which it's quite broad as well. And that's, I think, what concerns us is that 
you know, I like to think that Hitler is an evil guy because he certainly was. But me, I'm not evil, right? I'm a great guy, right? I, I do wonderful things. At least that's what I tell myself. But I have the, the option to choose evil each and every day. I have the option to choose to do things that God does not delight in. I can choose those things that God doesn't like. That's all it is. That's it. So to, to, to do evil is to do something contrary to God's wishes. And he lets me do it. That's the crazy thing. God lets me do it. He doesn't stop me, but he gives me autonomy. He gives me free will. He gives me the space, the freedom to choose contrary to him. So I've taken a little time here to get to the question, uh, did evil exist before Satan? Yes, it absolutely did. Because evil is nothing more than the ability of the creatures made in God's image to choose contrary to his wishes. All right. So just to kind of round up this discussion, again, I, I, I'm giving you the short version. I have a lot more examples and all kinds of stuff. If you check out the video, uh, but at least you'll, you'll have the, the essence of, of your question answered here. So in Ezekiel chapter 28, God says concerning Satan, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. So Satan was the creme de la creme. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, etc. Right? You were decked out. You were awesome, gorgeous. It quite possibly was a priest. You were the uh, anointed cherub who covers. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until right unrighteousness was found in you until unrighteousness was found in you by the abundance of your trade. Now, I actually make an argument here that um, when you look at the Hebrew, the word rechulatcha is by the abundance of your slanderings. Uh, it's a little bit of a detailed uh, explanation. I won't get into that. But anyway, there's a slandering, right? And your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. All right, so Satan chose he chose to do something contrary to god's desire god didn't stop him god allowed him to do it but the only way he could do that was it was if god had pre-programmed the ability to choose contrary to his will that was the that's the only way he could do it so god had to put that into the very fabric of of time and space the very fabric of our existence so that we could choose contrary to God's wishes. It's a pretty empowering thought. But it also means we have to take responsibility for our actions. And I think that's where some people really don't want to take responsibility for their actions. They'd rather think that evil is something that I just can't help. It's some mysterious force that acts against us and you know we are powerless to overcome it. Nonsense. It's just a choice. Nothing more than a choice. All right. Thank you, Cindy, for that great question. Tim, how would you instruct one in performing the vow of a Nazarite, Nazarite in a modern sense, considering Jesus fulfilled many of the symbols involved, and we as believers are higher priests than Levitical? Hmm. Um, well, you know, I don't know. I mean, I guess you could shave your hair if you wanted to. You could certainly fast. Uh, you, could, uh, you could take a Nazarene vow, and you could... 
decide not to drink wine, not to have marital relations uh, for a certain amount of time. And you could shave your head. Well, you shave your head at the end, right? So you don't cut your hair. So let's say for, for a month, you're going to take a Nazarene vow. So you would have no sexual relations. You would uh, abstain from wine, at the very least. You might throw other things in there as well. And you wouldn't cut your hair for that prescribed amount of time. Now, coming out of that, you're supposed to uh, offer some kind of a sacrifice. Since we don't have animal sacrifices anymore, one option is you could uh, you could actually have a barbecue for your friends because that's what ultimately happened with that meat is it was turned into a barbecue. Um, you know, it didn't just all grow up in smoke, right? So uh, you could have a, a barbecue for your friends if you wanted to. Um, you could forego the whole animal part of it. And you could give something else, you know, maybe, maybe you want to give some money, give some money to charity or to a church or to some orphans or, you know, um, to an international justice mission to help stop slavery or something like that. So, you know, I think, I think you could certainly find a way to give money and then you probably cut your hair. Uh, that's what I would think. Um, yeah, I mean. You know, I mean, that's kind of what Paul did, except, of course, they had sacrifices as well. So, you know, do something if you're going to do it. It needs to have something that costs. Right. So to buy a whole cow was, well, that was pretty expensive. And today, you know, that's probably eight hundred dollars. So uh, eight or nine hundred dollars, I think, is the price of a, a steer or something like that. So, you know, maybe look into what is the equivalent of the price of a cow. Figure, figure out how much money that is and then donate it somewhere. Um, so, you know, you, you're not killing the animal, but you're certainly, the sacrifice is that you're now taking that, it's costing you something, and then you're giving that money to some kind of uh, benefit for God's kingdom. So, hope that helps. Very cool. All right. Let's see. Here's a question from Gary. All right. Uh, is it Gary or Jerry? I'm not sure. I think it's Gary, but you can tell me if I'm not. Explain Genesis 6-4 to Sethite believers. They ask me, how can Nephilim uh, be there before if they came from women and angels? The English reading seems as though the Nephilim were there before angels and women unite. Okay, uh, well, so Nephilim are the product. Uh, it's very clear, I think, from the text, uh, but... For your sake, I will definitely go back to the text. Let's go to Genesis 6-4. Oops, I got 6-4. There we go. All right, so there were giants. That's the word Nephilim, Nephilim, uh, on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men of old who were of old men of renown. All right, so let's take a peek at the Hebrew. Hanafilim hayu ba'aretz ba'yimim ahem ve'gam achrechen asher yavo b'nei ha'elohim el banot adam. So, the Nephilim were on the earth ba'yimim ha'em in those days. Ve'gam achrechen, and also afterward, Asher. So the word asher is your relative pronoun. The relative pronoun is connecting. It's qualifying uh, something. So there were giants on the earth in those days and afterward. When? Okay. When what? When the sons of God 
were coming to the daughters of men and they gave birth for them or to them um and these were the men of renown so i think the hebrew is incredibly clear now on my website douglashamp.com i would encourage you to uh, go and check out a uh, article i have about the sethite theory uh, i think it's completely um vacuous i think you know the whole Sethite theory is just based on nothing. Uh, I did a debate with some guy a couple years ago. It's it's on here on my YouTube channel. Um, and he was all up in arms that, you know, how can you say this? And so I'm like, okay, come on my show and we'll do a debate. And I tried to keep it friendly. And uh, I gave, you know, mountains of evidence and he gave nothing. He's like, well, I just don't think it's possible. I'm like, well, that's fine. You, you're welcome to think that. But if you're going to tell me that I am somehow mischaracterizing scripture then you've got to pony up the evidence and and of course he couldn't do that uh the evidence is is overwhelming that you had the the sons of god coming and taking the daughters of men in those days and also afterward so it's sons of god those are angels those are demons uh now there's also a theory that that the demons are the disembodied spirits the nephilim i disagree with that i just taught on that this past weekend uh, in my in my teaching on uh, on Babylon uh, in Revelation chapter eighteen, so go ahead and check that out. Um, but uh, the idea that Nephilim are that excuse me, the idea that uh, demons and fallen angels are two distinct beings is nowhere um, proven in the literature. You have in the book of Enoch, you have a uh, suggestion that, that they're different. Uh, but Philo of Alexandria says that they're one and the same. Uh, I quote several places. I look at the Greek word demonios. Anyway, that's a whole different argument. But Nephilim are the fallen, or those ones who you might call them the, the, the fellers, right? If you, if you knock over a tree, you, you'd say that you fell a tree, right? That's the way we talked about it. So these are the ones who are causing something to fall. And um, that's that's the idea of the word filim. Uh, so it could be the fallen or the ones, those who make something fall. Is probably uh, what's going on there. So um, to the Sethite people, you know, I think it's just they just can't seem to believe it. Again, I, I in my book Corrupting the Image, I have uh, at least two chapters on that. You can get it in my book Corrupting the Image, which is on my uh, website douglasham.com forward slash store uh, or you can just read the article there on my uh on my my page uh, either way so buy the book or don't buy the book either way if you buy the book you help support the ministry which is great <laughs> all right great so uh fantastic i think we got maybe one or two more questions and then we're going to call it quits thank you guys uh should law observing christians be circumcised Ooh. well that's an interesting one uh, for many of us, it, it's not even a question because we are circumcised as children. The question then, of course, is what about later on in life? Now, Paul says, you know, if you're not circumcised, then don't try to be circumcised. If you are, don't try to be uncircumcised. So there's a sense that, um, you know, kind of stay as you are. I think that's one, one healthy perspective. Um, but I think there's also a sense that if I'm going to be part of the covenant of abraham right i want to be part of that 
then I, I want to do what God told Abraham to do. And so I think I think that's also very much um, very much an option. Now, from what I've heard, uh, if you go to a Moel, which is a, uh, a Jewish guy who gives you who does the circumcision, uh, they take a, a relatively small amount of flesh off. So if that's any uh, any any good news, uh, then you know um, you know it may not be as bad as you think. So yeah, I I, I would say I would probably err on the side of saying yes that you you don't have to. But you might want to, all right. Uh, kind of like baptism. Uh, if you don't get baptized, are you not saved? Well, you're probably saved whether you're baptized or not. The guy on the cross didn't get baptized, and he was saved. Jesus said, "You'll be with me," right? He wasn't baptized, but we also see that there's a commandment to get baptized. Uh, it's not specifically written in the Torah, and it's not specifically spelled out by Jesus that you have to be baptized, but he does tell us to baptize. Uh, he himself was baptized. So I think it's more in the sense of the spirit of, I want to do what my Lord did. Was Jesus circumcised? There's an interesting question. You better believe he was. So I want to be like Jesus. You know, I want to, I want to do what he did. I want to live like he, how he lived. I want to think like how he thought. And, uh, and I want my body to be as his was in that sense, you know. So those commandments that he kept, I want to keep to the very best of my ability. And in as much as modern society will permit that, uh, you know, and and obviously in light of the fact we don't have a, a temple, and of course that he went to the cross and did all that great stuff. So, okay, let's go to Jeremy again. <laughs> uh, if none of the laws were abolished according to Matthew five seventeen, should we be circumcised? Uh, though not for salvation, rather for obedience to God. Well, I think I just answered that, so I think that was part two of your question. Fantastic. Okay, here's question number two. All right, what is the best way to use the Feast of Weeks, the 50 days uh, count to Pentecost? So what is the best way to use the Feast of Weeks, the 50 days count to Pentecost? What's the best way to use it? Um. Hmm. Like, kind of like, what do you do during these days other than count? Um, well, you know, I, I think it kind of like the way you have Lent. You know, sometimes people use Lent. Not that I'm endorsing Lent, but the the spirit of Lent is that it's a time for repentance. Uh, so I think it could certainly be a time of, of reflection, a time of uh, prayer, uh, a time of spiritual renewing. Maybe use the... 49 days plus one to read through portion in your uh, in your scriptures. Um, so I think, you know, there's different ways that you can use that. Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if there's any right way to do it, but I think there's lots of options to do that. All right, I'm going to take one more question. This is from Street, and that's going to be the last one for today. Is there any indication that Pharaoh's magician had some sort of demonic assistance to imitate some of the plagues? Well, um, we we don't have uh, a specific mention in the text that it was demonic, but we we definitely are are surmising that we're definitely inferring that from the text. Uh, the idea is that if what Moses was doing was by the finger of God, and then the magicians could do that, they're called magicians. 
uh, and they could do that. But they they weren't just doing a trick, okay? They were somehow able to make lice, which was a bad idea, but they were able to make lice uh, go across the land as well. So that would that would presuppose that there was some kind of uh, spiritual influence there. And since they were clearly the bad guys, then we're going to deduce that it must have been demonic power. Uh, I don't know that scripture specifically says that, but I would say if we kind of put two and two together, uh, first of all, you know, they're the enemy of God. Um, they had all these false gods, which clearly weren't the good from the, the good side. They were from the bad side. So I think that's how we would come to that conclusion, though we don't have a specific scripture uh, that, that actually says that. So. Thank you, uh, guys. This was fantastic. This was really fun. Thank you again for your questions. Uh, I hope that this is a blessing to you. I really appreciate your comments. Uh, if you write to me and say, hey, you know, hey, thanks. That was great. Just letting me know uh, if there's something that you would like me to cover, some uh, topic, a bigger topic that is, uh, I'll see if I can get to it. Uh, but I love your questions. Uh, if there's somebody you want me to interview, uh, let me know. You know, you can, you can write to me at uh, Doug Hamp at gmail.com. You can write to me uh, with some suggestions. I may not uh, be able to get to everybody, uh, but I'll, I'll do my best and we'll see if we can have other people on. So I do enjoy interviewing people. And uh, as we are in this quarantine, I just pray that you'll use this time to, to spend time in prayer, spend time in the word. Um, maybe there's some things you need to repent of. Use this time wisely. And this is a great opportunity for us to grow, grow closer to the Lord. Thanks again, guys. God bless you and stay in the word. Till next time. Take care.